Hello everyone, this is Sam with a quick message before this week's episode about the new bonus podcast I'm going to put out every Friday called Club Reset, where I get together with a few like-minded lads to talk over various mental health topics. It's a lot of fun and I think you might find it useful too. It's for paid subscribers only, so head over to my Substack or to the new fantastic podcasting platform called hubwave.net to find out more. Cheers! Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the anonymous author of the brilliant new book, The Reluctant Carer. As he approached 50, the reluctant carer found himself recently divorced, struggling in his career and suddenly living in his childhood home, caring for his elderly parents full time. Over the course of two years, he kept a diary that covered the trials and tribulations of this new life, documenting the painful, awkward, but often very funny experience of being a full-time carer to his mum and dad. This is a beautifully written, bittersweet story that explores so much. Middle age, feelings of failure, loneliness, and how our relationship with our parents defines so much about who we are. I absolutely loved the book and was really pleased to welcome its author onto the podcast. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. The Reluctant Carer, welcome to The Reset. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be here. It's great to have you. Um, and uh, it's been great reading your extraordinary book. Um, first of all, my question is, I, I'll call you The Reluctant Carer. Why is it that you chose to write this anonymously? Well, there are there are several reasons. Um, and they they have changed and they are changing but it, it still seems like a good idea. I mean, this is, you know, this it, it's a, this is my real voice. I'm not using an elaborate piece of software to, to conjure it up or anything. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not that discreet in it. But um, uh, so the primary practical reasons for it were in the initial stages, I did really didn't want to censor myself. The book um, came out of uh, an article that I wrote anonymously. And when I wrote that anonymous article, I, 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 I was in kind of such a strange and private, I suppose, place, but with a real need to talk about it, um, that, you know, The Guardian, you've got a sort of established track record of running sort of first-person stories anonymously. Um, they were happy to publish it that way. So, and and the, re- the reaction to that article, which is, you know, was back in... Uh, January, February of I think 2019 is is what sort of created the momentum and the interest to, to, to bring the book about. So it, it it came out of that. And when I wrote that article, I really didn't know when I started writing, and I'd never written, you know, my background is is as a writer, but I'd never really written about myself to that extent before, or I suppose one's inner self. I I, mm. I I would have appeared obviously as a voice in the stories that I'd written in the past. And I certainly hadn't brought my family into it or stuff like that. So for those kind of reasons, firstly, for a kind of I didn't want to censor myself. Secondarily, I didn't want to particularly embarrass or implicate my my family. And I didn't want to ask their consent <laughs> either. <laughs> so and, and then what I saw quite quickly after that first article came out um, was that people, I think, started to react to it rather differently because there was no there was no cut and dried version of me between between the experience and their experience of my experience, a fancy way to talk about the writer mm. and the reader, right? And there were certain things that were interesting and, and amusing, like, you know, so the, that piece came out in The Guardian, and as anyone 
acquainted with it online will know the Guardian comments section is, you know, uh, not not a sort of particularly benign environment for the for the discussion or the reception of ideas. It's a, <laughs> it's a battleground, like any of those. Places. And yeah. so there were hundreds of comments, and they, they were they were kind of uniformly positive, except when people then started arguing amongst themselves. Mm. But I thought, well, that's interesting, and also it was interesting because some people just assumed that I was I was female because that's the kind of that's a very reflexive association for people who who end up working in a caring role. Yeah. And then I thought, well, there's something to this. People can kind of interpret me as they want. And then there was also a very practical reason because looking after my parents, um, a lot of my time was spent defending them, uh, mainly over the phone, mercifully, not too often in, in person, from people trying to sort of scam them, take money, get their data um, and stuff like that. So I... I, I was conscious that by potentially using my real name and, and putting a book out, which hopefully, you know, some, some, a lot of people will, will get something out of, I didn't want to draw more attention to their, their vulnerability on, on a practical level, on a personal level and stuff like that. So it, all those things kind of, kind of intersected really and, and, um, uh, and, led, and led to me deciding to keep it anonymous. So I, I hope that it, it gets to stay that way because I, I, it, I, it wouldn't be a big deal, but I, I do think it's. I do think there's a power in it. I think it maybe it takes you straight into the material, um, and 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 may, maybe a reader can place themselves there more readily without without a version of me in there, which might be an obstruction. And you know, the, the situation that my, with my parents has changed now, but um, uh, but I, I still think I, I still think there's potentially some some value in, in in not having a person in front of this idea because it could be you, and that's that. You know that, and and it is a lottery. You know that's what I remember that phrase from. So you know, I, th- I think maybe that it renders things maybe a little bit more accessible. I don't know. Um, take us to the beginning. Just tell us how you found yourself in this position where you were um, living in your childhood home, taking care of your parents. Where was your life at at that stage? Well, it had been. Um, it been well. I. I, I it had been a sort of car crash, really, um, of different circumstances. But all those cars were were heading towards each other for quite a long time. Um, it wasn't like a thing that, if I, as it is with life, when we look back on it, it seems there are elements of inevitability there. Um, so I was about 47, 40, no, 48 when I when I first moved back home, and I, I didn't initially. My, my, you know, I'm the youngest child. My, my my brother and my sister are quite a lot older than me, and my parents were in their forties when they had me, which was quite unusual in, in 1970 when when that happened, when I happened. Um, so when I when my dad first became sort of demonstrably ill and needed a lot more help and was getting sick, and he he, he was younger than my mother, but he was a lot less healthy. Um, I, I initially went back thinking, oh, you know, I'll just be here for a, a couple of you know, it would just take a couple of weeks or something, and it, or, or at best. And in the end, I was there for on and off for years, um, and that was not my plan at all. Um, and 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 because what happened at the same time was in, just as my dad was kind of starting to get a little bit better, you know, I had issues in my own life. Um, it, my marriage was ending, and so I ended up with nowhere else to go. So I, in effect, moved back into my 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 teenage bedroom. You know. Um, 30 years after I'd moved out of it, full of aspirations and ideas like um, any any exiting teenager. 
And, and needless to say, none of those had the idea that I would come back 30 years later without any of those things working out. Um, I'd also I'd also lost quite a lot of money um, that I had I, I had kind of got from one project that I'd worked on, and that hadn't and put it into another thing which had gone absolutely nowhere. So professionally and personally, I'd kind of completely run out of steam. And then I found myself back in this, in in, in my parents' house, supposedly to look after them. But this is this is part of the ambivalence of the reluctance of the title. People say, no, it's great you look after your parents. But I always had this nagging voice going, yeah, but I'm also, I need to be there. I'm scamming mm. off them. You know what I mean? It was great to have my dad's debit card and go to the shops and not have any bills to pay. It, it economically sustained me. So I felt, you know, a little bit opportunistic and parasitic. So I, I never had, and obviously that's just a sort of punishing inner narrative, but, um, uh, but I, I, I never had that clear sense of altruism. Oh, look at me, I'm doing a good thing. It was like, and, and what I came to understand, actually, you know, and also perhaps relevantly, perhaps not, I'm not, I'm not a parent myself. It, I, I came to understand that, you know, if you're lucky and you have a good relationship with your parents, it really doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It's, I, I hope that it was actually maybe quite nice for them to have me back. In addition to the fact that obviously, you know, I was able to sort of help them out and stuff. It, 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 it Part of the what's interesting about the situation, I, I said it in the book, is it's like, you find yourself like much older actors, but in the same in the same play, sitting and this. It's certainly because I was back in the house I grew up in. It's like same arguments, same vibe, same power <laughs> structure, same jokes, same bullshit. But the, who casts these people in it? Yeah, it's like at yeah. least in EastEnders, you can you know when you know when someone disappears, you just stick a new actor in. But it was like no, these these really old people are, are acting like they always did. Yeah. Um, the. I was going to ask you if you know that obviously your life in other ways were, were challenging and going through a difficult time. So my next question was like, did, was this at least some sort of respite in as much as it, it might have given you that sense of purpose and fulfillment to distract you from your other problems? Yeah. Like, I, well, I guess yeah. you've answered that. Well, you, know, I, you couldn't I, allow yourself to think that. Yeah, so once I'd kind of, apart from wrestling with the like, oh, okay, well, to sort of break it down, it's like, yeah, so people say, oh, it's good that you're looking after them, but I didn't, it's not enjoyable on a certain level, or certainly it wasn't in the beginning. Those things to do with elderly care, those intimacies are a transgression of certain boundaries that if you've not, you know what I mean, it's some, there, there's some there's some stuff you have to get over once you're actually going to start nursing people that you've grown up with. Um, but but then, as you say, um, yeah, so I was in, I suppose, you know, very simple terms, you could call it a sort of classic midlife crisis type scenario where certain things in, in younger life hadn't played out. Um, but you're you're absolutely correct. So once I'd kind of, well, what doesn't, here's the brilliant thing about a crisis. You don't have to get over it. It's just happening. Yeah. You know, um, there's, a, there's a great quote from, I think, one of the famous Russian writers, Chekhov, maybe, he goes, any idiot can thrive in a crisis. It's day-to-day living that wears you out. So it, a, a genuine crisis doesn't really give you much room to manoeuvre. I think that's why some people go around constructing them all the time, because on a certain level, you, you know who you are. So that that enabled me to just get on with it, because there was, there was in the way of great dramatic structure, no way for this character to go out of the story. I had to stay and deal with what was going on. Yeah. And then, yeah, as you as you intuit there, what came out of that was actually this new identity. You rather like a parent, you sort of absorb the situation and you go, even though I had all this ambivalence and uneasy feeling about it, and it was nothing that I wanted, 
it became who I was and it took up all my time and it made me tired and it filled my days. And so, you know, human beings, even though we, we often are at war with what's happening right now, you know, the reason it's us and not sort of cats walking around running stuff is because we, we are astonishingly adaptable. Yeah. We don't, we don't like that. This is a nature of, you know, part, part of our dissonance is like our minds going, this is terrible. But other parts of our psyche and our bodies are often getting on with it. It's like you often yeah. find yourself in a situation that you thought was the worst situation you could be in, it, but you've just made yourself and someone else a cup of tea. So there is part of you that gets through this stuff. And so little by little, I became that character, really. I became this sort of reluctant, caring person. And interestingly, well, interestingly enough to me and maybe to other people, and I'm this is less the terrain covered by the book. Um, but once the situation changed, once we got, in the end, it became so difficult that that more professional care had to be kind of called in. That it was then that I had to go back and really think about who I was. It became quite a difficult identity to get rid of, even though I didn't really realise that I'd taken it on board because mm -hmm. I was so busy complaining and writing it down. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I mean, you know, obviously this book is... It's sad, um, and it, you know, and and uh, you you create a really kind of uh, vivid atmosphere within this house, within your house that you lived in with them. Um, this extremely hot, <laughs> suffocating place, right? <laughs> you generate that. But here's something I've got to say to anyone about this book: is it is also very very funny. At almost all times, and even in the bleakest of moments, I, I, I want, I want you to confirm this is not just me being a heartless bastard. But it is clear to me that even in your bleakest moments, you could identify the absurdity and the uh, and the sort of comedy in almost everything that was happening because it was ex it's extremely strange. Your parents in the state they were in and you in the predicament you were in and all that baggage that you've referred to, that just made, that does make that, even at the saddest moments where I feel very sad for everyone in it, it is always funny. So you must have, and I know that you were writing a lot of this as you went along as well, rather than in retrospect, it was like, and so you must have at least had that. You must have, you must have been able to see that at all times because you were certainly writing it in those terms at all times. Well, thank you. I'm very happy that you found it that way. And that seems to be a, a thing that other people are getting out of it as well. And yeah, I mean, so the, uh, I have to ask, well, yes, it, it is, is the answer to that. And um, yeah, I, it, it, if you are lucky enough and, and one can only really thank the, who knows, the forces of the universe, whatever, but also I guess one's parents, one's upbringing the dynamics of a household and a culture at a particular time i do find things funny you know my mum in particular is a very very funny woman um and and my dad has a different sense of humor but at, at, with there so it's you know i i it, it, the 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 bit so there's the ability to find things funny and then the, underneath that perhaps there's the necessity of it I don't know how many comedians you've had on this podcast, but they're not often the best adjusted people in the world. So finding things funny is great. It's a mechanism, but it isn't necessarily entwined with a kind of long-term picture of mental wellness. But, but it helps. Do you know what I mean? It does help. Yeah. It, the, the ability to, to, find, to find yourself in a serious situation, but to understand rightly, I think, 
that it contains elements of the absurd um, is it, I can't. Well, obviously, I, obviously, I literally can't imagine it because I'm telling my own story here. But figuratively, I can't imagine how you would get through the situation if you weren't able to find it funny. Now, I should add, I suppose, that I was very fortunate with my parents in that we've got our back. No human family is without its kind of shadow dynamics. And sometimes those dynamics are very avert, right? It's the nature of being a mammal. It's not that straightforward, right? We carry those things with us and being thrown back into one's family. Most of our adult lives have spent sort of creating little worlds where we're able to somehow function with the people we grew up in in a managed way. We'll go there for various reasons, different, you know, not, not for everyone. But so when you're pulled back into that, there are stresses and strains. But I'm very aware that there are that there are people out there who, who stay away from or are troubled by or who struggle with their families for reasons more profound and chaotic than I I, I would touch on. So we do kind of we do get along as a family. It's got its stuff, but it's not so. You know, the, the, I, I would understand it very much if anyone was listening, going in either conceiving of this situation or living it and going, well, this isn't funny to me. So I consider that that in itself is fortunate. But I do think that, that the worst things in the world do do uh, are infused with humour sometimes in certain contexts. And we do ourselves a great disservice. And this is perhaps a wider cultural point when we, we try and assert that there are things in human experience which are absolutely, ab absolutely untouched by that possibility. Because at least, and I speak purely for myself and my situation here, it, it was life-saving. Um, and it was also a way in which I was able to, to bond and survive. And also it's a way of apologising. It's like things are difficult. And then if you can laugh about it in a group, in a kind of, because we were the collective victim of our experience and of each other as a kind of trio, me and mum and dad, um, you know, with a very powerful supporting cast of my, my brother and sister as well, but pri primarily the three of us. Um, so it was, it was cathartic and necessary for us. And I also came to understand when I first talked about my experience, you know, I was lucky enough to, I've still got a couple of good friends in the town I grew up in, which is where, where I'd gone back to. Mm. And when I would go and visit with them and stuff, um, uh, and I would start, I would start laughing and other people would start laughing and you would see that this is, you know, it's like, so I, I don't want to get too political about it, but certain agencies and certain circumstances that you might think would help you aren't going to help you in the way that you think you might need help. And so it, it does become a sort of necessary resource. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it is funny. It is funny. It's a costume drama. Your ideas mm -hmm. have dressed up as something else. Your parents have dressed up as something else. It's like, fucking hell. And, and so there, and there is fast to it, and obviously there's a tremendously vivid scatological element to it, which is a fancy, <laughs> yeah. a fancy way of talking about, you know, piss and shit, which are the defining sort of baseline of a certain amount of that experience. You know, you're dealing with a lot of incontinence and and things of that nature, so you've got to get down with that, you know. And and uh, and, and and part of the reason that some of our, and I'm not saying that the book's humour is necessarily skewed in that direction, but. You're, you're, you're deep in that reality. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to I, I'd love to hear from people who've done it and found none of it funny, but I suspect I suspect they're, um, uh, I don't know, I don't know what, what that would be. My, like. my mother was a professional carer for old people for, for uh, many years, 
and I've, uh, you know, I, I'm, I want to give her a copy of this book. I was, t- I was telling her all about it, and I knew that she'd find it funny and relatable because she was the same. She would come home with stories, and they were always told with warmth and affection. But you know, these are predicaments that she saw as in- inherently funny herself in the same way. Funny, you should mention the scatological stuff. I, I thought that you sort of um, danced around that in a very respectful way. Uh, but what's interesting is, not to put too far the point of it, is when, like, I sometimes muck around with my own mum about the idea of me one day having to take care of her in the way that you've uh, you have done, and it's a conversation that she she brings up in a comic way, and almost always very quickly, um, she will talk about me wiping her ass. Right, that is a thing that comes up, and the truth is. That's what a lot of people think about when they think about caring for their parents. That's one of the first big hurdles of being in the situation you're in. I mean, is that how big a hurdle is that to get past when you first start doing this? It is a psychological barrier and it is like all psychological barriers more, well, almost entirely, this this sounds almost redundant, but it's entirely of the mind. Um, one of the good things about um, the way in which we are wired to respond to matter that we excrete is that you're just compelled to deal with it unless you yourself are suffering from some level of mental illness um, or a particular <laughs> fetish. You yeah. will sort it out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You won't yeah. not deal with it. I can guarantee you. And by the way, if, if someone can't do it and runs away, that's fine too. It will. This stuff will meet you where it finds you. But I, I, I would imagine it's a bit like being a new parent. You just, oh God, you, you just deal with it. Yeah. And obviously, your your baby is sort of in tremendous pain and weighs eight or nine stones. So the parallels end, you know, mm. at a certain level there. But no, you do just you you do just deal with it. And but obviously, it's an, it, it, one has to be sensitive to the uh, to the to the person who's experiencing as well. Mm. Um, but. I would imagine in in my mind, that's the bigger issue almost is that like, you know, the the, the impact it has on your relationship and the way that it makes the other person feel. But I mean, so here you're touching on a very powerful thing here. And I think one of the dangers of it, um, which is to say caring, caring for your own parents, caring for your own family, um, is that all the dangers of our response to it, I should say, um, the dangers is that it, it can be, it can it can begin to stretch and deteriorate a relationship. You know, it, 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 there's no point saying that this is easy or it's funny and that's all it yeah. is because it's also difficult and it's also filled with, you know, so, different from, obviously everyone's different, but those testing elements of it um, and our response to it and our response to that response, by which I mean to say how how we feel about ourselves when we know we've lost our temper or when mm-hmm. we've, made a mess of things or not been as nice as we would want to be um, or, or just found ourselves exhausted and exasperated and not knowing where to turn because those things aren't clear to us culturally. No one, I don't think, really knows quite how to do this. So it, it, it's about how to sort of rehabilitate ourselves through that stuff because it is and it will be imperfect. And so you have to kind of be down for that as well, holding ourselves to kind of fictional standards of like what you should do as a, as a child when you are called upon to effectively act as a parent to someone who, to whatever extent, parented you. 
it, it, it is going to get messy. And here I'm not talking about the sort of physical practicalities of that. I mean, I mean the, the emotional mess is much harder to deal with. I mean, the modern world's wonderful. I mean, so this story begins before COVID, but, you know, we already had a house full of disposable gloves. It's like it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long to clean up that mess. But the, the, the mess inside you is, also, is, is going to get stirred up. You know what I mean? So I would say, clicking back to the, your, your line of inquiry there, that which can be swiftly mopped away is the least of it. Yeah. I mean, I was going to, you know, that, that's the next thing is that you've got these practical things and, um, and you've got the, you know, the, the personal challenges of the, the isolation and, and sort of loneliness that you paint a very vivid picture of. But also I'm interested in just like the unresolved issues from long before. So, one of the ones that that you bring up a lot is the fact that, you know, in your youth, your dad was away for a huge amount of it because of work. And that's something that is stirred back up a lot inside yeah. of you, isn't it? Yeah. So everyone will have their version of this. And this, I think, is one of the reasons that I'm still happy to sort of stand aside as a, as a personality, you know, in, in terms of the anonymity thing. But obviously there are specific things. So, yeah, so... My dad was um, was was a sailor in, in the merchant navy, and uh, and that for him, you know, and so that that's that, that absences are very different. You know, what I mean, that's not like obviously it would be different if he had left for a different reason. You know, it might be different if he was assault. You know, or any other number of different outcomes. But um, it, that absence, which had predated me being born, that was always the world that I grew up in. Was was seeing him seldom um and and then him being away again and so that was if you're from a family where from where, where that's what one of the one of the parents does then that's that's normality so you don't mm. i think understand that as being anything difficult or anything weird and you know my dad was a to the best of his abilities a, a, a very a very loving kind person and you know and the the economic advantages of the work that he did, you know, obviously informed our family and, and the experiences that I had. And because he was very good with money, also also very much informed what we were able to do for him latterly once I couldn't cope anymore in terms of care. So all that is embedded within our reality. But I do think that um, it, it in terms of my relationship with him, which again will be slightly different from my relationship that my sister and my brother had, all, all these things, the order of where you are in your family, sibling, all that stuff, right? I think all that's important. But in terms of me and dad, it did, it, it did, I was aware that we were confronting a kind of, there was a kind of, there was something missing there. And, and I don't mean missing in the sense of it ought to have been there. It's just, our the way in which we loved each other as father and son was framed around ideas of each other mm. and i think and i hope i'm not just looking back here and, and wrangling things into a positive when there wasn't but actually um those last few years were were the closest we were in, in some respects. And I feel very fortunate that I'm able to, to look back on it that way. And I hope it was, I hope it felt good to him as well. But we didn't, we didn't, uh, it, it, when I see friends of mine now with, with their sons, um, and there are others, there's other cultural stuff in here as well. Like, you know, my dad was born in 1930. Mm. 
in 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 Lancashire in in the depression, and so his the whole parenting model is is so vastly different now. But I'm it it, it did make me think about how things could have been different, and that's this I suppose will happen to anyone. Maybe it, it's a so it's an important stage, I think, in human development. When you, if you're lucky enough to get old enough to have a lot to look back on, you could look at the, how your life played out and your important foundational relationships and go, "Oh, it didn't." And you see how small the chances are that change things. A decision here, a decision there. It's almost unreckonable. What mm-hmm. did, you know? What job did you take? Who did you meet? All those little things, and one becomes aware that it didn't need to be the way it was, and that some of some of the pain and the discomfort, which is every human being's lot, might not necessarily have been the way it was. But then, so there's tremendous opportunity for sort of punishment. I mean that with a small p, because suddenly you're in charge of these people. Mm. And regardless of how fantastic your relationship with your parents may be, there was a time, maybe even before your conscious memory, when you were totally dependent on them and depending on which psychological school of thought you depend, you subscribe to, you resented that. You know what I mean? Babies, toddlers are angry about the fact that they need us, right? And that's just on a general level. <laughs> and some of that's in there. So suddenly finding yourself in power, it's like in one of those collapsing countries where suddenly they put like a sort of 17-year-old soldier in charge of the entire nation. Mm. And so you have to be... You have to be careful, I think, because or just be aware. Careful is too strong a word for it, because some of that stuff arises, and we're not necessarily articulate in how we communicate our deeper feelings to the people that we're closest to, because families and intimacy sometimes we communicate in a kind of code. We just mm. behave, right? Everything's communication on some level, so those things do play back, you know, with, with frustration and 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 real anger. You know, you know, I've got, I've got. I've got problems with that, and some of some of that wanted to come out with my dad because it is it is so frustrating. And how, so, how do you know where the frustration with the fact that your life, my life, wasn't the way I wanted it to be, would manifest itself in the fact that you know my dad would ask me ten times for something that you know I would go back and or, or just the struggle of getting him mobile. It's very difficult if you're you know if you're working with a disabled person who you love. But you still get in a fucking car. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, yeah. and, and, and these are forbidden things. So it's hard to express those frustrations and think of yourself as a loving person and keep an eye on how much old frustration is working itself out through the new frustration. So uh, and so the fact that you're able to find something in that funny and, and uh, you know, so it's like not to invoke crowded house, but four seasons in one day would be an understatement. It's as if... <laughs> It's as if all kinds of weather are happening, like weather that doesn't even happen on Earth, storms, mm-hmm. Jupiter, you know what I mean? And then moments... Although the temperature never changed, because as oh, you yes. said, the only thing your dad was able to get up and scale stairs was to make sure that the thermostat was always at maximum. Yeah, yeah, no, his ability to sort of rise from his, his wheelchair and, uh, and, and, and and adjust the thermostat would have given, you know, Matt Lucas cause for concern. Yeah, so it was... Um, <laughs> It was, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly for comedic effect, but not by much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. So as anyone with elderly parents knows, um, the, the temperature, yeah, it, it, they're just, I mean, it's a tragedy, really. I think it's to do with um, circulation. But yeah, their, their belief that they were never warm mm. in an environment where you yourself were on the brink of expiring because it was <laughs> so hot. 
yeah um, that's that a constant a constant thing yeah um but the, but what was interesting about about that is the fact that you you know I, I have this sort of depiction of you just feeling it is a suffocating atmosphere emotionally psychologically but also physically you're in this house and you sort of paint a picture of it. it's like there's no escape it's almost like a sort of a, a reality show in some senses you know like you're you're stuck in this place you don't feel like there's any escape it's really hot, so it feels like it's literally suffocating as well as sort of mentally suffocating. It all, all adds to this picture that you draw. I, I also wanted to um, ask you about your relationship with your siblings, your brother and your sister, because, you know, you write with affection, but clearly there was a lot of strain on those relationships too, which must be common to a lot of people in this situation. I, I think so, yeah, because what's going to happen if you end up caring for your parents is you're pulled back into a dynamic um, mm. and, most of us, I think, you know, again, I can't speak for everyone, but we have like a functional relationship. You see people on a basis that works for both of you. And when there's, you know, when there's a happy event or when there's a small, you know, everyday crisis or bereavement, everyone gets together. But with a prolonged thing, like like caring for elderly people, and that, that pulls people back together in ways that they're not used to. This isn't like just getting together for a few days over Christmas, right? And so everyone knows how how challenging that can be. So, and, and it pulls up all that collective baggage, I think. Naturally, it's difficult. The division of labour is difficult. Who should be doing one thing or another? Now, it just so happened that um, because I, I I needed my parents' help, I needed that roof over my head, I was there, and I, I myself don't have children, that I was the, and, you know, I'm doing the inverted commas thing with my fingers here, I was the perfect person to do that for a while mm. um and you know whereas my, my siblings ha- had work you know they had actual work to do and they've got actual children to look after although they you know their kids are mostly quite old now and also you know everyone's got their own stuff and it's difficult i think because there's a there's a kind of hardline societal narrative here about what we should do and then there's what we do end up doing and what we're comfortable end up doing comfortably end up doing so mm. um you know what they use, the phrase they use in, in often in sort of therapy and family stuff is constellation, like a group of stars. You're arranged in a pattern with, with certain energies and how you do things. And so, yeah, it is very difficult because you're you're going to be pulled back into contact with with people, and you're going to have to discuss all those things about like responsibility and you know money becomes a very very complicated thing. What do we spend? How do we spend it? You know, a, a culture of sort of everyone has different relationships. The sibling parental relationships are different amongst themselves. You know what I mean? So everyone's bringing, yeah, everyone brings so much baggage. It's like, you know, it's like a disaster and, you know, an airport, there's stuff everywhere. It's, it it, it is very difficult. And so I think on one level, one is very lucky to have siblings to work with, but that can also be quite, quite tricky as well. Because Canter families apart. I mean, I've seen that happen. You know, my, my grandparents had eight children and everyone sort of had a say when it came to their care. You know, it had to be a sort of everyone has an equal say. But what I and I remember that causing huge rifts and arguments and reading your book, I saw saw elements of it in as much as everyone should have an equal say in one sense. But then again, you're the guy on the ground. Yeah, dealing with it every day and you write about the 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 emails that your sister sends you incessantly 
um, which is very funny the way in which you write about them. But at the same time, you can clearly see how sort of frustrated and annoying it must be (laughs) as well. Both those things come through. And I'm thinking you're on the ground. So you feel like, you know, in many ways, your point of view must have felt like more legitimate than anyone else's when decisions had to be made. And that must cause a lot of frustration. It does. But I mean, yeah, so we can, yeah, it's like you're, you you are clearly the frontline soldier and then other people getting back to you like General Hay communicating yeah. with some chateau behind the front line. <laughs> exactly how it comes across. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, I mean, that, that's, that. well, listen, my sister hasn't read the book yet and I, I really hope she's okay with it. Um, but because, I mean, it's not, it, it, it my sister's thing is that she deals with her anxiety, I think, through communicating, through writing emails, through mm. phoning me up. From her point of view, her coping strategy is le- it's less about the content of those kind of documents or making those phone calls for her than it is the act itself. That's yeah. her. I've come to understand this much better. I should say, by the way, I feel much closer. And we're not, I don't know, not that we weren't close anyway, but it, one of the perverse wonders of this situation is I do feel. You know, it does test you, but you know what it's like when you get tested with people. If you come through it, it's a hell of a shared experience to have had with people. So I do, you know, I do feel like I, 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 you know, I know my brother and my sister much better now than if we hadn't had this collective challenge. But yeah, no, So, but, but I think hopefully it's clear in the book. The thing that my sister would do was like when I would go away for a few days and she would sort of take over, she would then constantly report this. You know, with, with with with, and she would sometimes, you know, e- email me and and text me and call me on the same day. So that was a bit like watching Bloomberg or something. Like they'd be <laughs> talking to you and the information on the screen, the ticker tape, yeah. yeah, all to the same thing. And this would be on a day when I had I, I had really tried to sort of think, oh, I won't think about it today. So, but yeah, it, it was funny, and you know, and that's that's her process. And and actually, you know, to her credit, I think on some level, um, our family is perhaps one where stuff that should get talked about doesn't get talked about so to a certain extent her compulsion to talk about it a lot is it is a necessary counterpoint your uh you know your mention of of your you know a couple of good pals you had from childhood still living nearby i found that really i found it really beautiful the way that you sort of painted a picture of these mates who you could sort of escape to from time to time and just get some respite and relief and maybe a bit of fun and distraction yeah I I, I thought that was amazing and it must have been important but I mean did you have therapy during this time as well like ongoing therapy because the main thing is is that all of this was in your head so much and there was so little like sort of outlet for any of it yeah I mean you those are three intertwined and, and and very very good points Sam um so yes I'm very fortunate I think a lot of people who kind of because they run away from home. But a lot of people who leave home and move to a bigger city, um, you know, maybe maybe they're not so lucky. But I had, thank God, you know, like you say, friends who had stayed there and who I had, I had always stayed in touch with. And so the book, I'm very happy now, actually. The book ends before lockdown and, and COVID. Um, and but then when I when I went back there during lockdown and I wasn't able to visit those people, mm. I really felt it then because I had to do that winter of um, excuse me 2020 without being able to go to those people's houses without being able to go out and have a curry with anyone or any of that stuff. Mm. 
So that was actually, I think maybe I got a taste of what it would have been like if you were in a town where you didn't know anybody anymore or you were yourself, you know, particularly trapped and lonely. So for all my, this sort of profile and wisdom that I'm building through this book and sharing, I know, I know there's a tougher version of this. And that, as you say, having, having those abiding friendships and look, maybe it could be a new relationship. It's not necessary. I'm just, it's lucky, I think, if you know people that have known you since you were a kid um, and, and they're still prepared to talk to you because you're up against the other people who've known you since you were a kid and you're falling out with them. So mm-hmm. it did it did connect me to that. And actually the person who reminded me of that because I felt so full of self-doubt about the, the struggles and the strains of looking after my parents was um, uh, was my the, the therapist that I ended up seeing. So to that point, um, I, yeah, I, I reached a point... Um, it, and some of it's in the book, I think. I don't know how, but I got to a point where I just thought, I can't, I don't know what to do anymore. I don't really understand who I am and the emotions that I'm experiencing and, and inability to sleep. And it was like, I just don't, and I've, you know, I don't want to get too much into this, but, you know, I, I've, I've I've had I had had mental health problems in the past, so I know that I know those feelings. I know those fears. In some respect, if you've been in a mental health crisis, I, I, it can be useful because you know it second time round. But the flip side of that is you're like, it's not like oh, what's this? It's like oh my god, here she comes again. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like you can. Th- th- there's also fear in that recognition, and so um, I I. I was, I kind of really, I realised that as a human being, I'd run out of moves. My idea of who I was had no cards left to play. None of the sort of things I thought of that I relied on, the ideas that I had, and any version of my identity, it was all played out as a husband, as a son, as someone who had not been a father, as someone who had now seemed to be a professional failure. It was like, well, I'm done. I got nothing here of the ideas that I thought would get me through it. And and I also have a job to do. I can't sit back and do nothing here. So with all that in mind, I was very fortunate. I, I asked a friend of mine to ask their therapist if they knew someone, and I was very lucky, I think. I don't know if this happens for a lot of people or not, but the first person that I spoke to, you know, I didn't have – I had very little money at the time. That that therapist was willing to to see me for a, a reduced fee, and they were they were great. And like a lot of men, I think don't go and and and, and open aren't open. We a lot of us aren't open to that kind of interaction until we've been cut open. <laughs> you know what I mean? Until we're bleeding. It's like and you yeah. So um, yeah, I, I came along in crisis to that. And that person um, was, yeah, and that relationship. So, yeah, so therapy is a, in, in, in that situation. That became a new relationship. Um, and and that went on for all of the, diff- yeah, I, I saw that therapist for two years and I would still be seeing them now. I mean, but if, 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 if you know, but unfortunately these things are, are, are expensive. And also it had, I think, reached a kind of conclusion and the, the crisis that created it had to some degree receded. I'd come to terms with it, but the therapy was tremendously helpful on that. So yeah, it, it, for, for, for all the value of old friends, and I'm, that, that is an inestimable value, which means to say I can't grasp it, it's so valuable. 
having someone new come and piece it all together with you and remind you of things that you are too intimate to behold um, clearly was was really really useful um, and 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 just as a just as a clean clear space to to look back because I didn't like looking back at my life and and, and to and to face the present it was it was phenomenally. It, it was phenomenally valuable. Yeah, I think I was very lucky. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in many, many ways. But yeah, that that relationship was 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 pivotal to my healthy survival, if you like. And 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 you know, and I I can only imagine that that helped that helped my parents as well because it wasn't I, I hadn't become totally dependent on them. It's like you you can't need. It's better if you don't need things from the people you're helping. Mm, mm. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, it's a beautiful book. It's bittersweet. Um, and I think, you know, it raises so many sort of questions that all of us might have to tackle or maybe have tackled. Um, I absolutely love it. And I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to talk to me about it today. No, I'm very, I'm very grateful that, that, that you've had, you've had me on, Sam. I hope that, um, I hope that people listening, um, are, um, are able to get something out of this conversation and, and the book as well, if they want. Great stuff. The Reluctant Carer. Thanks for joining me on The Reset. Thank you very much, Sam. That was The Reluctant Carer. His book's out now, and it's not only a deeply insightful, warm and funny book about the experience of caring for elderly parents, something that so many of us have to do at some point in our life, but it's also an incredibly intelligent and readable look at so many aspects of the human condition in general. I love this book. I hope you will too. It's a strong recommend from me. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to subscribe to The Reset at sounddelaney.substat.com. Paid subscribers can also get access to a new weekly podcast called Club Reset, out every Friday in which I get together with a few mates and the odd expert to chat about various mental health topics in a sort of group setting. You can also subscribe via the brilliant new podcast platform, hubwave.net. Just search for The Reset on there. Links in the bio of this pod. Until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.